Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. If you have a Bible, I invite you now to turn with me to Luke chapter 2. We're going to read a longer section, uh, so, you know, get ready. Uh, We're going to read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 40. Oftentimes, this is broken up. The reason that I'm keeping it all together is because it's kind of bookended uh, in in Luke's gospel. He doesn't include the flight to Egypt that that Matthew does. Uh, But this section is kind of bookended by them leaving Nazareth and then them coming back to Nazareth uh, before we move on as as Jesus gets a little bit older. So, So Luke kind of writes all of this in, in this section in the Bible that, that seems to make me think by, by bookending it that way with this trip to and from Nazareth, uh, that, that there's something going on in all of this that's good for us to see. So let's look at this story, Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, 
Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and and the favor of God was upon him. Most gracious Father, as we pause in our lives now to look at your word and to hear the gospel proclaimed, we ask that you would illumine our hearts and minds that we could rightly understand your word. I ask that you would strengthen me to proclaim clearly and boldly the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we see this story once again that's so familiar to us, of Christ being born for the salvation of his people. Father, would you give us certainty by your spirit that Christ is for us. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, as we've been going through Luke, we've seen in these opening chapters that there's this kind of back and forth between John the Baptist and Luke. John the Baptist's birth is foretold, or John the Baptist and Jesus. John the Baptist's birth is foretold, then Jesus' birth is foretold, then Mary and Elizabeth talked, and John the Baptist was born, and now Jesus is being born. And and as we've said, Luke has kind of just sprinkled in all of these Old Testament references all through the story. Well, we come to the first place where he actually quotes the Old Testament. He quotes from Leviticus chapter 12 uh, in in Luke chapter 2. But, But it's been absolutely just full of Old Testament allusions. And even though we have a quote here, that that's far from the richest parts of the Old Testament that, that Luke ties in to this story. Again, it's, it's just sprinkled through with all of these allusions, especially to the book of Isaiah, as Luke casts this story in terms of, of a new exodus for the people of God, being led not by Moses and the law, but by Jesus and his grace and mercy for his people. And so as we look at this passage, we're going to look at three aspects of it uh, that that kind of break down somewhat with how the passage flows. First of all, we're going to look at the historical setting of Jesus' birth, primarily from the first seven verses of Luke chapter 2. Then we'll look at the purpose of Jesus' birth, primarily from the, the scene with the shepherds. And finally, we'll look at the backstory of Jesus' birth from the closing section uh, where, where Simeon and Anna are introduced. And, and as we look at each of these sections along the way, we're going to kind of comment on what we see in the text and, and, and kind of what that means. But then we're also going to ask this question over and over and over of, of why does that matter? Why, why does it matter that we understand the historical setting of the birth of Christ or the purpose of Christ or, or his backstory? 
Because when we begin to ask that question and see why all of these things matter, it moves the Bible and, and these stories and, and, and my sermons and all of this. It moves them out of just being trivia into something that actually gives life and that helps us understand and process how we should think about life in light of the gospel. So first, the historical setting of Jesus' birth. It's important, and I talked to the kids about this, it's important that we understand the historical setting of Christ's birth. In the first seven verses, Jesus is born into a definite historical context where real people are mentioned, Caesar Augustus and, and Quirinius, the governor of Syria, and, and real historical events that, that we can look back in history and see record of. And, and, of course, there's some debate over which census it was that was going on when this happened. But there's no question that, that this did happen, that these censuses were being taken and, and, and that people had to return home. And, and so, so what we have is Jesus being born into a, a real, definite traceable, findable, pointable moment in history. That, that this is a historic story. But then alongside that, we also see, as we look at the history, we see some realities of Jesus' life foreshadowed even in his birth. We, we remember for a second, we, we think back, and we remember Elizabeth's response when Mary showed up with, with the baby Jesus in utero, how the, the baby in, in, in Elizabeth's womb jumped for joy, and, and it was this time of worship and praise because Elizabeth was meeting the, the, the mother of her Lord, and, and, and the baby in her would, would be the salvation of Israel. And it was this glorious time. And so you would expect, or at least I would expect, that if that same family had to travel and go probably to a family home, we, we get thrown off by there was no place for them in the inn. We, we make it, it, it makes it sound like they showed up at a Motel 6 and, and, and some jerk at the front door was like, no. You know, but that's not what happened. Um, it was probably a family home uh, that, that people would have stayed in. And, and probably what happened was the upstairs where guests would have stayed was probably already full. And so they stayed downstairs. It was un, it, it was totally common in this time for, for animals to be kind of brought in out of the weather into the lower levels of the home. But in light of the fact that this dear woman was giving birth to the Savior of the world, you would think someone in the house would be like, you know what? Y'all stay upstairs. We'll go to the manger. We'll go downstairs to, to where the animals get brought in. But that doesn't happen. Everybody in the home is like, yeah, we're, we're already here. Everything's settled in. There's some, there's some room there. And, and, and I don't think we need to read this in, as them being callous necessarily. For all we know, there could have been other pregnant women that were already upstairs. And why should they give up their spot for this lady just because she got there a few days late? Like, well, we, we can't read too much into that. But here's what we can read into it. At this point, Mary and Joseph and, and even Jesus himself weren't in any kind of exalted state. That they weren't walking through life like, like a prince or a king with everybody just going, oh, wow, look how incredible they are. They were regular people just like everybody else. And if they were the last ones to the party, they got the short end of the stick and had to stay downstairs where the animals were. It, it reminds us of, of the, the normalcy of Jesus' life. And, and, and that's good 
for us to remember because, because it reminds us that, no, he really was a man like us. He really was born into a family like ours that, that had all of the normal struggles that our families would have. He, of course, was without sin, but he wasn't kind of floating through life with his family where nothing could touch him. The next thing we see is that, that his family was faithful, and, and we'll dive more into this, so I'll just note that, that they were very careful to, to obey the law and to do all the things that was required. But as we, as we see them doing this, in verse 24, we read this. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, that may seem like, okay, well, that's a fine offering. Uh, but when you go back to Leviticus 12 that's being referenced here, that's being quoted here, what you learn is that that was the offering for those who were poor. Those who, who had, you know, normal means, upper middle class, whatever you want to call it, they, they were to offer a lamb for the same ritual. But if you couldn't afford that, this was your offering. So, so we learned something about Christ and, and kind of the, the status that he would have had in life as a person. He didn't come from the upper echelons of society. He, he came from the working class. He came from those that God had to make special concession for because they couldn't afford the bigger offering. That was Jesus' lot in life. That was the, the context into which he was born. And then along the way, as we, as we look at this, we see that there are other historic figures, Simeon and Anna, that confirm his identity. And, and we'll dive more into that as we get to that section. But, but what Luke shows us in, in no uncertain terms is that Jesus was born into real history. And so why, why does this matter? Why does it matter that we understand that the story of Christ, that the gospel is a historic story? That, that it's not just a, a moral code or, or a philosophical idea or, or a fable like Aesop's fables, you know, a, a fun story with a point at the end. Why does it matter that the story of Christ is more than that? Well, Paul gives us some insight. If we can, if we can bring Easter and Christmas together in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives us some insight when he says this, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. It's that simple. If this didn't happen, then we have no hope. If this didn't happen, then our sin hasn't been paid for. We could say, if Christ has not actually been born, then our faith is futile. If Christ didn't actually live in perfect obedience to the law, then our faith is futile. And of course, as Paul says, if Christ, or if Christ didn't die, our faith is futile. And then, as Paul says, if he wasn't raised, our faith is futile. See, one of the things that, that sets Christianity apart from, from, from so much else is that our claim is not just like, hey, we have a helpful way of thinking about life. We, we do claim that, but not just that. Our claim is not just like, hey, we've got a, a, a clear moral code that gives us some guidance on, on what right and wrong is. We do claim that, but not just that. Our claim is that something happened in history that changed everything. And if it didn't, then even what we're preaching doesn't matter. See, see, really what, what we're doing, to, to, uh, to quote a guy named Rod Rosenblatt, a Lutheran guy, he said, we're putting all the blue chips on Jesus. 
We're going all in on Jesus. And if he wasn't who he said he was, if he didn't do what he said he did, then we lose. And we're out of the game completely. But the good news is he did do those things. And when the story is told, it's put in the context of history because that's how it happened. Because here, here's the thing. A moral code isn't enough. Everybody has, except for perhaps the pathological, everybody has some kind of moral code that we break. Even the ones we come up with on our own. We break them repeatedly. We'll, we'll judge other by, others by them to make ourselves feel better, and we'll, we'll point out where others broke them worse than we did, and, and, and we'll exalt our moral code over everybody else. We've all, but we've all got one, and we all break it. A moral code isn't enough. If it means anything, it means that we're condemned. And so if that's all we have in Christianity is, is a new set of rules, go love people. Well, well that's not enough because we've not done that. Likewise, a philosophy, a worldview just isn't enough. All kinds of philosophers have spun all kinds of, of fantastic and at times helpful worldviews, ways to think about life and, and improve your lot in life and, and get along better with others. And, and like That's out there. It's just not enough because it doesn't actually address the problem of sin. It doesn't address the problem of, of the people of God having been scattered and needing to be brought home. Likewise, if all we get from these stories is religious traditions, that's also not enough. As we go through the Gospel of Luke, we'll, we'll see over and over and over that religious tradition isn't enough. The, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they had that in spades. They were great at religious tradition. They were great at doing all the things and jumping through all the hoops and, and, and saying all the prayers and making all the sacrifices and having all the feasts and, and throwing all the, the things, all the parties that they were supposed to throw and, and being where they were. They, they were fantastic at it. And Jesus is very clear over and over and over. It's not enough. See, what we need, what we need is for God to come rescue us. And what Luke is telling us is that with the birth of this child, that's exactly what was happening. As we affirmed our faith using Philippians chapter 2, earlier this Christ hymn, he, he sums this up for us. That though being found in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, emptied himself, taking the form of a man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself even to the point of death. Why? That we might be saved. And then he's exalted. Then he's lifted up. And the name that is above every name is proclaimed. But first, he came in real time, in real flesh, in real history, to really satisfy the justice of God for the people of God. To set us right by his actual work in history. See, if we lose that, if it just becomes a philosophy, it just becomes a worldview, if it just becomes a, a religious tradition, if it, if it just becomes any of that, then we've really lost everything. 
we've lost everything. Thank God that, that it's so much more than that. The, the second thing that I want us to see this morning is, is the purpose of Jesus' birth. That Jesus was really born in history, and he was really born in history for a particular reason. And, and, and I didn't point this out because I wanted to say it right here, but, but the historical setting already kind of gives us a clue as to what that purpose might be. Because when you read the, the historical setting of Jesus' birth, they moved from Nazareth down to Bethlehem because of this whole census thing, and that's where Jesus was born, was in Bethlehem. And, and you read that, and, and without any Old Testament background, you may think, okay, well, that's inconvenient. Uh, but, you know, thus it goes, and so there they went, and, and that's how it happened. But when you read that story against the background of Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 5, you, you realize, like, Okay, that wasn't just a historical inconvenience. That was the the hand of God's providence at work. Because what Micah tells us in chapter 2, verse 5, is that this future Davidic ruler was coming. And and this future Davidic ruler would bring security to the people of God and peace to the people of God. And he would be from Bethlehem. So all of a sudden, this this historical detail of they left Nazareth and went to Bethlehem, and that's where Jesus was born, is is chock full of significance that, that foreshadows the purpose of Jesus coming. He was to be the Davidic ruler of all time. And of course, we know that. The, the angels already told Mary that, and we've read that chapter. He was to be the Davidic ruler whose, whose kingdom would be forever and who would bring true security and true peace to the people of God, who would establish justice and righteousness for them that they couldn't establish for themselves. That was why he was coming. That was why they went to Bethlehem. That was why the census happened. That the word of God might be fulfilled. But then as these shepherds are out in the field, minding their own business, doing their own thing, taking care of their sheep, doing whatever it is that they do, all of a sudden, the angel of the Lord appears before them. And the glory of the Lord is there. And and understandably, they're freaked out. They're out in the field, pitch black, and here appears the glory of the Lord. It gets your attention, we can assume. They're scared. The angel says, fear not. Why? And here he announces what's going on, and we see very clearly the purpose for Christ's birth. I bring you good news of great joy. You don't need to be scared. Though you're faced with the glory of God, dear shepherds, you don't need to be scared because I'm telling you something that should fill you with joy and should fill the world with joy and should teach us to sing joy to the world. The Lord has come. This is good news. And that's the first purpose for which we see Christ coming. To bring good news into a broken oppressed, failed, hurting world. A world that needs good news. A people who have been exiled and brought back, but not fully, and and things aren't the way they're supposed to be, and they're still occupied by the Romans. I've got good news for you that will fill you with joy. And it's good news for us, too. Because we live in that same broken world. We, we live in the, in, the, in the context of the same kinds of undone relationships, 
of unfulfilled dreams, of, of unreached potential, of, of all of these different things that, that lead us to all kinds of anxiety and all kinds of fear and, and all kinds of, uh, of failures. And we live with all of that. And, and we, too, are people that need good news that will bring great joy. And that's what Christ has come to bring us. That's what the gospel announces. And I I mentioned this last week, and and I'll probably harp on it for a while. But is that how we talk about the gospel? Is that how we talk about the gospel to ourselves? Is that how we talk about the gospel to our neighbors? Is that how we talk about the gospel to those that we desire to reach for the Lord? That it's good news that gives joy. Or, Or do we talk about the gospel in this way that's like mostly condemnation? With, with maybe some hope there at the end. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Here, the, the, the angel is beginning to allude to the fact that what Jesus came to do, the purpose for which he came, extends beyond Israel as a particular nation. It's for all the people. And this, of course, is in accord with, with the, the promises made to Abraham that you will be a blessing to all nations. And, and it's in accord with the promises made through the prophets that it'll that, bring people in from all over the place. And it's in accord with what God's always been doing. But that's why Jesus came, was to extend this message of good news and extend this message of joy out of Israel and to the world. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. A Savior. From what do we need to be saved? Well, Matthew spells it out for us. His name will be Jesus and he will save his people from their sins. We do have a problem of sin. That is a real issue that has to be addressed. It's a, it's a massive elephant in the room. We don't like talking about it, but it's a reality. We, we, we all know our sin. But that's why Christ came. That's why he came. To save us from that. As, as I mentioned last week, Paul's very clear about this. That God moved toward us in love while we were sinners. John says the same thing. It's not that we loved him, but that he loved us and and gave his son to to be a ransom for us, to to pay the price for us. That's what Jesus was coming to do, to save us from our sins. Are you a sinner? Jesus came for you. Just as you are. He came for you in all your sin to save you, to give you life to give you redemption, to justify you, to forgive you, because he loves you. That's the purpose for his coming, to be the savior of the world. For he is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. We've talked about this little word Christ before that that becomes something of a a proper name for Jesus. And for most of us, we think of it as his last name, which is fine. Uh, It's it's a title, though. There's all this etymology you can do, but it essentially goes back to the Hebrew idea of a Messiah, someone that's been anointed for a particular job. 
And, and as I've told you before, there, there are three primary camps or categories of people that were anointed in the Old Testament. There were the prophets who were anointed to proclaim the word of God to the people of God. There were the priests who were anointed to represent the people of God before God and to make all the sacrifices. And there were the kings who were anointed to lead the people of God and to establish security and peace for them in the land that God had given them. And and as you read through the story of the Old Testament, it, it becomes increasingly clear that there's going to come this day where these three offices of prophet and priest and king, these three anointed offices are brought together in one perfect anointed one. One perfect Messiah who fulfills all of it. And the angel is telling the shepherds, that's Jesus. This kid that you're going to go see wrapped in swaddling cloth, lying in a manger, he is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah par excellence. Nothing else will be needed. He is the priest who will represent you perfectly before God Almighty and make all the sacrifices, the only sacrifice that's left that is needed. He is the prophet who is the word of God and who will proclaim the word of God to the people of God. He is the king who will lead and secure peace for his people for all time. That's what he was coming to do. That's what it means for him to be the Christ. To be the perfect prophet, priest, and king for his people. And then we're told, of course, later that he's named Jesus. Which is the word for Joshua, which is built on the Hebrew word for save. So so it's the Savior who, who is essentially named Savior. That's... His job, and as as Matthew points out in 121, he's named this because of the work he will do. He will save his people from their sins. Even his name declares his purpose. This is the child that was born for you to save us from our sins, for the world to save us from our sin, for the people of God to establish us in security and peace forever. Now, why does all this matter? Well, first of all, because what Christ came to accomplish for us doesn't have to be accomplished by us. And that's part of the good news of the gospel. It's not our job to establish the kingdom of God. That's the king's job. It's not our job to establish the peace and the security. That's the king's job. It's our job as the people of God to live in it, to rejoice that the kingdom has come, to to take up the, the wonder of the security that we have in Christ and live holy with that, to lean into the peace that he has made for us. And live from a place of peace having been made with God. And as being made secure with him. And as being given a new identity in him. See, what we are is the benefactors of the king. That's what we are. We get all of the benefit without having to accomplish it ourselves. 
That, that's the first reason why, why seeing what it was that Jesus came to do matters. If He came to be the Savior and He was successful, then guess what we are? The saved. If He came to establish the kingdom and He was successful, then guess what we are? Citizens of the kingdom. If He came to give security and peace and hope and identity and He was successful, then guess what we have? Security and peace and hope and identity. And, and we can lean into all of that when everything in our life and everything in the world is trying to convince us that it's not true. When the wheels of life are coming off and, and jobs are being lost and families are falling apart and, and pain is real and, and, and diagnoses are being announced. When, when the wheels are falling off and it feels like, no, none of this can be true, we can look back and say, no, this is what Jesus came to do and he accomplished it. And I don't look to the world or my life to see whether or not it's accomplished. I look to him at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, sitting down, his work complete. He fulfilled the purpose for which he came. And so this informs then how we live now, doesn't it? If the kingdom is present, then I get to live, you get to live as a citizen of that kingdom by its standards, by its rules, in light of its security and with its peace. You don't have to come up with any of that on your own. Now, of course, we need the Spirit to, to continually press this down and into our deepest parts. But I assure you, that is the right way to live. And as we've talked about, it's a profound reversal from how the world works and, and how we see things operate out there. It's as some have called it, it is an upside-down kingdom. It, it doesn't make sense to us but it's actually what we were created for. It's actually how we were created to live. And so the fact that, that we see clearly the purpose of Jesus' birth, the purpose of him coming, gives us categories for how we should think about life, how you should think about yourself, freed from sin and death, a citizen of the kingdom, having a hope, and a security and identity that can't be taken away because it's all given by Christ. Third, the, the backstory of Jesus' birth. As we continue on in, in verse 21, we begin to see very clearly that, that as I mentioned early, Mary and Joseph were very faithful Hebrews. They kept the law. They did all the things. Chapter, or chapter 2, verse 21, at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, that's exactly when that was supposed to happen. Leviticus 12, 3 prescribes it. And they did that. Then they go for the time of purification and, and bring the offering for, for, for the poor that, that was prescribed. And they did that. But then over and over and over throughout this section, in verse 22, 23, 24, 27, and in 39, we see explicitly mentioned that what they were doing was according to the law. Chapter or Verse 22, they did it according to the law. 23, as is written in the law. 24, doing what is said in the law. 27, according to the custom of the law. 39, according to the law. Over and over and over, Luke goes to great length to make sure that we understand 
that the law was being fulfilled from the very beginning of Jesus' life. See, that's the backstory in part of Christ, is the law of God. He, he didn't just show up out of nowhere. He, he showed up with, with all of this, 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 this prequel work done, all of this story of Israel, and all of this law given, and all of these prophecies announced, and he was dropped into that literary, that religious, that historic context in order to fulfill all of it. And Luke makes plain that he did from the very beginning. From the very beginning. But then we also begin to see, as we see all of the, the kind of layers of, of how Luke writes this story, we see not just the explicit quote from Leviticus 12, but we see all of these layers, as we saw from Micah chapter 5, just this allusion to the, the promise of a child born in Bethlehem. But then as we go through this and, and we read Simeon's story and Anna's story over and over and over, particularly Isaiah chapter 9, almost every line of it, is repeated as being fulfilled with the birth of Christ. Almost every single line. In, in addition, we see Isaiah 40 reference. We see Isaiah 52 and, and, and Psalm 118 and Isaiah 28 and Isaiah 8 and Ezekiel 14. Over and over and over, what Luke is doing is, is, is telling the story with, with virtually every line, every punctuation of his story is, is an allusion to something in the Old Testament being fulfilled, some prophecy being fulfilled, some law being fulfilled by the life of Jesus. And then we get to the story of Simeon and Anna. And we see that the Holy Spirit has been at work in all of this as well. Notice how Simeon's story is told beginning in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple and when the parents brought the child into Jesus to do for them according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, and we'll get to a song in just a second, but here's what I want us to see. That the Spirit is at work in all of this. That the Spirit is at work in, in, in sin. We, we, we tend to, to think in, in, in our world as, as the Spirit being this kind of post-Pentecost reality, but, but here he is living and active and working and guiding and, and, and filling Simeon's mouth with words to prophesy over Jesus. And this is what he says. Lord, now are you, you are letting your servant depart in peace. Remember, remember he, had, he had been promised by the Spirit, you're going to see the Christ. You're going to see the Messiah, the one promise. What a promise to get. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. Why? Because he had seen him. He was holding him in his arms. This is the Christ child, the one who will establish Israel forever. Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. He's, he's looking at Jesus holding in this child the salvation of the world in his arms. I've gotten to see it. I've gotten to see it. The salvation that you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles 
and for glory to your people Israel. This child, this salvation that I hold in my arms, he's the light of the world. He's the light that shines into the darkness. Those who walk in darkness have seen a great light and I'm holding him. And I've got him right here. What a moment of joy for Simeon to get to to hold that child as promised by the Spirit and proclaim virtually every line of this comes from Isaiah, by the way. You're doing what you promised to do. And I got to see it. What joy. But, But notice what he says about him. He's for Gentiles and for Israel. He's for the whole world. He's for everybody. This Christ child. This perfect prophet, priest, and king. And then there's this prophetess, Anna. And and the fact that she's called a prophetess, we we, we can assume that, that the Spirit's at work in her as well. And she's been this faithful woman. Her husband died uh, years ago and she's just given her time and and spent her days in the temple worshiping and fasting and prayer. She just decided uh, apparently upon the the death of her husband, I'm just going to go to the temple and I'm just going to worship and I'm going to give my life to that. And God had sustained her for for these. She's now 84. Some people argue she's 91. There's some weird math to be done in the Greek there. But, But she's very old and she's spent her life there worshiping being sustained by God. And she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. An allusion to Isaiah 40, once again. It's picked up again in 52. It's picked up also in Isaiah 8. But she's seeing this this fruit of what she's been worshiping for her whole life the redemption of Israel, the purchasing back of the people of God, the establishing of the kingdom forever. And she worships God finally in the presence of her king. What a picture. And all of this is is the the backstory of of Jesus because, because what they're doing is they're saying, he's the one who has come in fulfillment of everything. Now, why does this matter? Because it shows us that Jesus is the continuation and fulfillment of Israel's story. That that it's been one story, as as, as we often say here, that the Bible is this one story of God establishing his kingdom through his Christ according to his covenant promises. That's what Luke is showing us here through all of these movements about the fulfillment of the law and all of these layered allusions to the the prophecies and, and, and these faithful elderly saints who are seeing Jesus saying, this is him. He's the fulfillment and continuation of Israel's story. And in bringing Israel's story to completion, as promised to Abraham, he brings the whole world into their story. Remember what was said to Abraham. You will be a blessing to every nation. So in fulfilling Israel's story, what Jesus is doing, and Simeon recognizes this, he's bringing all the rest of us into their blessed story of grace and mercy from Yahweh, from the Lord Almighty. That's what Christ is doing. That's why it matters. 
because it explodes this story out to the whole world. Jesus establishes the rest of the story of God's global people. Whatever we are to be, we can only be in union with Jesus Christ. However we are to walk, we can only do so if we are following in his footsteps. That's what it is to be a disciple, to follow Christ as he has walked. He's everything. He's the very center of the story. Everything about who we are and what we're going to do and and what we're going to be all comes back to and flows from him. This is why it's, it's imperative that that we know him, that, that, we, that we walk by his spirit with him because he's the center of all of it. He is the fulfillment of everything. The way Luke presents the historical setting and, and the purpose and the backstory of Jesus' birth, what it does is it thrusts Jesus right to center stage. And he says, don't take your eyes off of him. Don't take your eyes off of them. That's what we're called to do as Christians. To fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who fulfilled the law, who kept the promises, and who has secured us in his kingdom forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope of the gospel. We thank you that Christ stands right in the middle of everything. And we ask that you would help us to fix our eyes on him. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of scripture and theology.